Okay. Will you stand as we read from God's word today? We will be in Psalm 126. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive and active. And we pray that as we spend time reading it, that you would speak through Pastor Vin by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, that what you have revealed to him can be shared to us and that we would know more of your heart. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may have a seat. Thank you, CJ. Yeah, okay, so for those who don't know me, my name's Vin. I have the honor and privilege, as always, to preach God's word uh, to us. So keep your Bibles open uh, as we continue in worship uh, through the preaching of God's word. Uh, I just want to say a quick congratulations to those who got the 14, I think it was, that got baptized uh, yesterday at our outdoor baptism service. So congratulations, and uh, just to let you know, no one drowned yesterday, so <laughs> praise God. Um, except for the two people, so when we went out to the beach, there were two people, uh, elderly people who were trying to sunbathe, and then hundreds of people from Willingdon were just like walking past them and blocking the sun and creating a solar eclipse, so it didn't help. But anyway, they can get their sun today, because today's going to be a crazy hot day today. Um, as you keep your Bibles open, I want to ask you something. Does anyone remember the fashion trends of the 1970s and the 1980s. If you do, then let's take a short walk down memory lane. Will this quick walk down memory lane hurt you? Yes. Is it going to be painful for all of us to see some of these pictures? Absolutely. That's why I'm here. Okay, so in the 70s and 80s, Everything was big. You got big hair. I think there was big ties. There were big shoes. Big shoulders, like shoulder pads. Especially the frilly ones on your wedding day dresses. And then big pants. Um, some of you are shedding a tear right now because it's like, oh. But do you know what they say about fashion, right? You do know that fashion trends always come back. So I hope and pray that Jesus returns before some of this stuff comes back. <laughs> but you know, when I see some of these fashion trends or fashion trends that come back into society, into our culture, it makes me think about my childhood. And I think about what I would love to see again. And I wonder if there are some things in the past, if we brought them back today, that would make my life simpler, easier. 
I wonder what God will bring back for you and me today in order to restore us. What would he bring back today that would make us happy? What would he bring back today to make us content? I have three points I want to make in Psalm 126, and they are God's work, our work, his glory. Okay? So that's God's work, our work, his glory. Before we actually get into Psalm 126, the first phrase I actually want to really want to highlight for us is actually in the heading of the psalm. So if you look at the psalm itself, in the heading, you're going to see this term, a song of ascents. So a song of ascents is a group of psalms, specifically it's, it's Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. Um, they, they are also known as, not just song of ascents, but they're also known as pilgrim songs. So you have to think of it this way. Um, so the city of Jerusalem was actually located up on a hill, high up on a hill. And when Jews traveled to Jerusalem for the Jewish festivals, three in particular, this is what would happen. But the three festivals are actually really important because that's what it's really referring to. So the first uh, feast, the first festival that the Jewish people would have celebrated would have been the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover. For those who don't know, during the Israelites', Israelites time as slaves in Egypt, they actually cried out during their slavery. They cried out to the Lord to rescue them. And by God's grace, the Lord heard their cry. Then the Israelites were commanded. God told them, hey, this is what you've got to do. You're going to sacrifice a lamb. You're going to take its blood. You're going to put it along the doorposts. And then what's going to happen is an angel, the angel of judgment will pass over you if it sees the blood. And it will pass over Egypt. It will spare your lives. But after the Egyptians who did not hear this command had received judgment, Israel left immediately, left the land of Egypt, out of slavery. So in preparation of this exodus, the people were made to make bread without leaven because it had no time to rise. The point was that they were to eat their meal knowing that the following day, the day would be of their deliverance. See, this historical account is actually recorded in Exodus chapter 12. The second festival that the Israelites, the Jewish people would have celebrated would have been the, the Feast of Weeks. So the Feast of Weeks celebrates the conclusion of the Exodus, the conclusion when they came out and they get there to Mount Sinai. The Feast of Weeks occurs seven weeks and one day past, following Passover. That's the Greek term Pentecost, the 50th, the way they refer to it, the 50th day. Following the historical count in Exodus chapter 19, of Israel's arrival at Sinai, Mount Sinai, for 50 days after the Passover. The third festival would have been the Feast of Booths. So the Feast of Booths is uh, described, prescribed in Leviticus chapter 23 and Deuteronomy 16. The feast actually begins with a collection of palm and willow branches to be used as a symbol of rejoicing before the Lord. All of Israel would camp out in tents for the entire week, offering all types of sacrifices and burns offerings to the Lord. 
The prescription in Deuteronomy extends participation, like an invitation to the people. But the participation to the festival was not only for male Israelite citizens. But the festival now, the invitation, the participation was also included and reached out to priests, orphans, widows, uh, immigrants, and both male and female children and even slaves. So the purpose of the Feast of Booths was to remember the giving of the law and the renewing of the covenant between Israel and the Lord. So as the Jewish people walked up the hill to Jerusalem for these festivals, they would sing these songs of ascents as they ascended up the hill. So that's part of the framework I encourage us to hold on to as we move through Psalm 126. Okay, so my first point is God's work. Okay, so in verse 1, the first word I would encourage you to highlight in your Bibles would be the word, you're going to see here, is the word when. That's the first thing I would encourage you to highlight, is when. See, the song starts off with the premise that what God has done in the past he can do for, again for Israel now. So the question then is, what did God do to restore the fortunes of Zion, of the people of Israel? So throughout the generations, before this occurs, God had continuously warned Israel, hey Israel, if you keep living this way without me, and disobeying me, then I, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to allow another nation to invade, to conquer, and then, then to put you into exile. And he gave more than one warning. So, because God desperately wanted Israel to know that there were consequences to the way that they chose to live their lives without him. And out of his grace, he would, in his time, save his people from themselves. God will bring Israel back to their homeland, and when he did, when he brought them back to their land that he had promised them, he would call them to then what? To rebuild their homes. Hey, start rebuilding. Rebuild your crops. Grow food. And then even rebuild the temple so that you can worship. The one thing I'll say is, do not look at this word. So the, there's, a, there's a key word here, and the word is fortunes of Zion. In verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Look, don't look at the word fortunes as this, just these financial gains. You have to see this holistically. God took his people from captivity, from slavery, and from certain death, and restored what? their worth and their dignity because slavery will take it away, your worth and your dignity. And there God restores it when he brings them back. See, the nation of Israel went through many, actually many, smaller scale exiles. But they went through two major life-changing exiles. So the first was the Babylonian exile, the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, okay, 70 years. The second major life-changing uh, exile was the Assyrian exile. We do not know exactly, it's not recorded of how long they were in exile for, but we know for sure it was 
quite a significant time. What we have to remember is during those times, when they're in exile, when they're into captivity, when they're in slavery, family members died. Others in their family probably got married into, they married into the nations that had kept them captive. And then while they're in captivity, some had forgotten about the homeland. But each time they were in exile, a piece of them was left behind. And I wonder what is left behind when they get back home. Like, think of it this way. It would be like you and I, if each and every one of us returned to our childhood home. We've all grown up now, and we've created our own homes today. But when you go back to your childhood home, it feels different. But at the same time, it's familiar. You see, when the Israelites come back from exile, you have to remember that the first few years would be extremely difficult. Why? Because it's just more, it's more when you come back from exile, it's more than just the rebuilding of land. It's more than just rebuilding of the temple. But it's actually a rebuilding of what? Society, a culture that has been completely under captivity. You have to remember when they were conquered, when they were in captivity, when they're under, under slavery, the nations would have told them to, this is what you can eat. This is the language you need to speak. And this is the God that you need to worship. So you've been doing that under for 70 years or longer. All that becomes soul-altering. Those things change you from the inside out. But what are we reminded of in verse 1? We're reminded in verse 1 that the Lord restores the nation one person at a time. God's restoration of the nation and the people was so full and complete. You know how full and complete it was? At the end of verse 1, it's described as like a dream where everything's perfect. You know, every job in the world is hard. I'm more than sure that the, the, the job that uh, you have is difficult. It has its good moments and its not-so-good moments. And for me, pastoral ministry is the same. It's no different. One of the hardest things for me personally in, past, in pastoral ministry is this, is when I have to hear women and girls who have been abused in all sorts of ways, that's a hard thing to hear. Maybe more so for me now because I have two daughters. I wish I could. I wish I could make it all stop. All the pain, all the suffering, all the abuse. I wish I could help alleviate the pain. Or tell some of our young men to knock it off. to our women, if someone is doing something to you or asking for a photo that you do not want to share or that makes you feel very uncomfortable, you need to tell them to stop. And you need to start telling someone else that you trust to give you the support that you need. And if you are the one asking for that photo, 
or you're asking people to do something that makes them very uncomfortable, you need to stop. And you need to start by confessing and repenting of those thoughts and actions. But there's help here, church. But look, to my brothers and sisters, on all sides, I am encouraged when I read Psalm 126, verse 1. Why? Because what it's stating is that God has the power and still has the power, that same power to restore humans, whole humans, to make them whole spiritually, physically, and emotionally. So no matter what you have done or no matter what has been done to you, God can restore you. We have a small glimpse into this power. Where? When we look at the cross. Look what the cross did to Jesus physically, emotionally, mentally. But the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that not only restored him physically, but it also restored him emotionally, mentally. See, what God the Father did to his own son, he wants to do for his adopted children. So according to this Song of Ascent, there are two things that happen then when God restores the fortunes of his people. There are two results. The words and phrases I'm going to highlight for us, you're going to see here in verse 2 and then in verse 3. What happens is the results are they are filled with laughter, there are shouts of joy, and then we are glad. There's gladness, there's joy, there's laughter. The first thing that happens when God restores the fortunes of his people is joy. A joy that's indescribable. A joy that makes you want to go up onto the mountaintops and scream at the top of your lungs. Like losing that thing you love most and you're frantically trying to look for it, and you turn the house upside down, and you get to the point where there's no hope, and you don't think you can find it anymore, then one day, after you've given up all hope, the funny thing is when you're not looking for that thing, that's when you find it. And you scream out, oh, honey, look what I found, or I wasn't even looking for you, but here you are. I just hope you don't say that to your children when you find them. But it is a joy that is created by God's grace. And there's no better example of this grace-given joy than the joy of salvation. No greater. Okay, so for those of you who have not made that decision or don't know nothing about the joy of Jesus that he has to offer you, the first thing I'll say is, I am so thankful that you're here with us today. You're welcome here. But would you think with me? Think about this. You know, here in the West, we're really big on self-help books, are we not? Really big. They have been on the bestsellers list for decades now. And I think, safely assume, they're going to continue to be on the bestsellers list. Why? Because just like you and me, including me, we all agree that we all want to get better in some 
aspect of our lives, do we not? But each year, another book, another speaker, another show, another podcast gets released, and they try and tell us how to become better. And if and when we do these things that they tell us, only then we will be content and have joy. But if one or many of these self-help books had all the answers, then we wouldn't need any more books. But that's not the main issue to me. Here's the main issue. I think the main issue is that our culture (coughs) keeps changing the bar of what would help humanity, of what would give joy. It keeps moving. If they keep changing the bar of what will give joy to all humanity, then they will then they will never get to the answer because the answer will always be evolving for them. But what does Jesus say in John chapter 16, verses 20 to 22? He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You know, the joy that Jesus offers, he's offering to you today. It's a joy that no one can take away. Why? Why do I know this? Because he is the one that gave you that joy, not the world. And his bar does not change. His love does not evolve into demanding even more. But Jesus remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means what? His love does not change. So ask Jesus into your life. Ask Jesus for him to completely take over. Ask him to give you a glimpse of his joy. Now to my brothers and sisters who have been walking with Jesus, all you Christians that have been walking with Jesus for a really long time, long enough that maybe walking with Jesus has been stale and boring. And maybe you're just going through the motions. Just, just going with it. Or maybe you're just waiting until Jesus returns. Then you'll take it a bit more seriously. Or maybe you're, you're wanting to see him face to face. Because deep down, that joy that we're talking about is you know, waiting for you in heaven, stored away in a shelf. And you'll get to use it when you get there. But what does Psalm 51 verse 12 tell us? In Psalm 51, verse 12, it tells us, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. So there is a joy, or there will be a joy indescribable when we meet Jesus face to face, of course. But there's a joy for us today. There's a joy for us right now, not just for tomorrow. To my Christian brothers and sisters, do you have joy? Because I would dare to say, because if you do not have joy, then I would question if you're even a Christian. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? In Galatians 5, chapter 22, 
I mean, chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The love of God, without a doubt, needs to come first. You need to know that and experience that, but what's the very next proper response? Joy! So Christians... Wake up from your slumber and ask Jesus to restore the joy of your salvation. The second thing to happen when God restores the fortunes of his people is actually mentioned back in verse 2. So if you look at verse 2, the thing that occurs is here. It says that, interestingly enough, that they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The next door neighbors of the Israelites, that's what it's referring to, the next door neighbors could see and hear about the physical changes to the land, but also to the people. The neighbors, for the neighbors to see, to hear, and to witness with their own eyes, and ease, what the God of Israel had done, when they witnessed it, all they could do is respond with, the Lord has done great things for them. So today in 2023, this is a bit more of a challenge. Why? If we were purely to look at this, and to look at the land, not translate this, look at the land, or in other words, if we were to look at our houses, our cars, and our clothes, our neighbors are not going to look and think, ooh, what, look at what God has done for them. Why? Why won't our neighbors say that? Why? Because some of them, most of them, has probably bigger houses, better cars, nicer clothes. It's going to be more than that. Well, what if it's this out, out, outward exterior? Let's be careful here because there are many good people out there, are there not? There are good people. They're better than me. There are more accepting people out there, more accepting than me. There are more charitable people out there, more charitable than me. So, What's the core then? The core is this. But I don't think there can be anyone on all of the planet Earth that can be more Christ-like than Christians. That's the core. So would you join me and others with one simple task and take the opportunity to be Christ-like when we serve at Love Our City, which is coming up? So the second point I have is our work. So we've got God's work, now we've got our work. In Psalm 126 verse 4 is now the request that the people are making based on what they know and proclaim in verse 1. Okay, so they're asking God to restore their fortunes as he once did, but with a very interesting twist. Okay, so there's a twist. The twist comes right at the end of verse 4. And at the end of verse 4, he tells, so verse 1 says, restore the fortunes. Verse 4 then says, restore the fortunes, restore the fortunes. So it's a repeat, like what? Like streams in the Negev. 
Okay? So the Negev is a, is a desert. It's a desert with no streams of water at all. There's no water running through it. But on the rarest of occasions, the most rare occasions, torrential rain would shower down over the, the Negev. And it would happen, the key here is, suddenly. There would be so much rain that it would create streams of water running through it. The point that this song of ascent is making is that when God does restore, when he does restore the fortunes of his people, it will be surprisingly sudden. You have to remember, this comes from the context of the people in captivity when they were slaves, and then suddenly God does a mighty act to free them, and then all of a sudden they're free. They didn't see it coming at all. I imagine it like this. You know, in my first year of marriage with Laura, uh, her and I were asked to babysit our pastor's kid at our church. We didn't have kids at the time, but the pastor asked us, would you babysit our children? We said, sure. I don't remember most of the night. You know why? Because I choose not to remember that night. I had no idea what I was doing. And those pastors' kids were lying out of their teeth, telling us, oh, my parents are going to stay up as late as we want, and we get to watch TV all the time. And while we watch TV and stay up all night, we get to eat ice cream. The truth was, at that time, honestly, especially as pastors, we had no idea when they were coming back home. Laura and I needed an act of God to rescue us. And then all of a sudden, the parents come home and we were set free out of captivity. <laughs> Side note, pastor's kids are the worst. <laughs> but here for us in Canada, in the 21st century, it is hard for us to understand captivity like Israel understood captivity, right? But there are things that make us captive, that keep us captive. I don't have a list for us, but I have questions that you can think about, the things that keep us captive. So my questions are, what keeps you up at night? What do you worry about most? What gives you anxiety? What causes you fear? What would you change about yourself if you could? Do you feel guilt or shame about something? Is there something about you that if it became public, it would ruin your reputation? Or are you lying about something? Are you hiding something from your spouse or your loved ones? If this is the case, then the question then is, what are we to do? The answer actually comes in verse 5. The answer comes in verse 5 when verse 5 tells us that we are to sow in tears and then reap with shouts of joy. Sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. You know, the terms sow and reap are farming terms. 
which makes this all the more interesting. And I'm not a farmer, you can tell by my body type. Um, here's why I think it's interesting. You know, in previous generations, as in today, not in biblical times, but today, in previous generations, when, when, when tragedy struck, when bad things happen, when they happen to you and I, when they happen to our fathers, our grandparents, we were taught at a very young age, we were taught to hide those feelings, to bury them deep down, to not show weakness, to grit our teeth and then to try harder, to overcome, correct? Today's generation is a little different. Today's generation is told when tragedy strikes, when bad things happen, you are to tell the world. Express them all. Put them all out there on social media. Post them for all to hear. Do not try harder to deal with them. But what you need to do is to eventually find a way to numb or to satisfy those feelings. There's no right or wrong. I'm just stating culturally what's happened. But you know what the Bible does? The Bible does better and goes deeper than both. Because the Bible encourages us, encourages us to sow, to sow our tears, our hurts, our fears, our anxieties, our concerns, our lies. What does that mean? Instead of hiding the feelings or expressing them for all to hear and to see, the Bible calls us to, first of all, you've got to pray your tears. Pray your tears to the Lord. They go to Him first. See, praying your tears is like sowing a seed. You're putting your faith into practice. You are planting that seed and trusting the Lord will do something with that seed because you trust He is the farmer and that He knows best. What He does with that seed, we have no idea. But we know for sure that He will not let that seed go to Waste. You know, if my kids ever got arrested, which is very likely if they're my children, and they were given one phone call to help, just one, who do you think they're going to call? The only one that they, can, they know they're going to call the person who can help save and rescue them. They're going to call their parents. Because they can't call themselves to rescue themselves. It's themselves that got them there in the first place. So this is why we're called to pray to the Lord, talk to Him. He wants to hear your tears. Sow them to Him. But sadly, there's a danger. If we do not sow them, if we do not sow them to the Lord, our tears become Nothing. They become nothing if we do not sow them. Because if all we do is complain about our tears and then waste them, you know what happens if we do not sow them to the Lord? We then become angry and bitter about our tears. You know, Laura, when her and I used to go for walks, she would wear uh, ankle weights. And every time we went out walking, the ankle weights would help to strengthen her legs. 
But you know that feeling after you take off the ankle weights? You know what happens? The walk feels lighter, right? It feels lighter and easier. See, part of the sowing and the reaping is to share your tears, first of all to the Lord, but share them appropriately with others. And then use your previous tears to, their, to help those with tears now, today. Mourn with those who mourn, or best said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in, in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. One of my all-time favorite books and movies is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. An epic scene is where the two best friends, Frodo and Samwise, They're near the end of their journey. And Frodo can no longer carry the burden. And he can no longer carry the weight of the ring. And when he's given up all hope, it is Sam, the friend, the sidekick. It is him that puts Frodo up on his shoulders and carries him the rest of the way. Did not Jesus take something as tragic as his death on the cross and out of that tragedy bring joy and comfort to many? Did Jesus not carry the weight and burden that was ours to carry? You see, the joy and comfort that many of us have experienced as Christians and will experience is the reaping we have graciously received all because of what Jesus has done single-handedly without our help. But yet, we're called here to sow our tears to him. So let's roll up our sleeves and get to work in our tears, but let's do it together. So sow your tears to the Lord. So to my third and final point, his glory. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the great joys for a parent is to see their babies walk for the first time. There's a moment of such joy and achievement for the parent. But the way that the child expresses and experiences that freedom with the first few steps is like a dream. You've been working towards this for such a long time, and the kid is walking. But the child can easily forget how they, how they got to the freedom of walking, can they not? They forget that it was the parent that patiently walked with the child, holding the child's hand. They forget that it was the parent making sure that the child did not fall or bump its head on the corner of a table. They forget that it was the parent who kept encouraging the child, just take one more step towards me. You can do it. Come on. How easily we forget what God has done for us. 
how easily do we walk and never look back? Eugene Peterson, a pastor and theologian who passed away in 2018, once summarized Psalm 126 saying, the psalm does not give us joy as a package or as a formula, but there are some things it does do. It shows up the tininess of the world's joy and affirms the solidity of God's joy. It reminds us of the accelerating costs and diminishing returns of those who pursue pleasure as a path toward joy. It introduces to us uh, us to the way of faith to both experience and to share in joy. It tells the story of God's acts, which put laughter into people's mouths and shouts on their tongues. It repeats the promises of God who accompanies his wandering, weeping children until they arrive home, exuberant, bringing in the sheaves. It announces the existence of a people who, along with whatever else is happening, are able to say at the center, we are glad. What Eugene is basically saying is that God's joy that he gives to his people who do not deserve it, his joy in comparison to the joy the world has to offer makes the world's joy seem small and insignificant where his is firm and sure. So I want to conclude with this thought. My thought is is that I truly, I truly hope that each and every one of you has enjoyed this summer because it's coming to an end. And if you haven't enjoyed this summer yet, hey, today, it's really hot, so go enjoy it. Start today. But I want to let you know personally, I've loved this summer. I've enjoyed the times with family and friends. I've enjoyed the conversations. I've enjoyed the laughter when you laugh so hard that your stomach hurts. I've enjoyed the meals shared with the ones that I love. I've enjoyed the late night bike rides and the late night meals that come with those late night bike rides. I've enjoyed the walks around our great city. I've enjoyed the wonderful views and the sunsets and the sunrises. I've enjoyed the fireworks that have lit up our beautiful sky in our city. And I've enjoyed the time away. The time away from the noisiness. Where I go to a place of quiet solitude with the Lord. I've I've enjoyed that. It's been good for my soul. And I really hope each and every one of you has enjoyed this summer just as much as me. I really mean that. But you know those things that I've just described and maybe you're imagining? All those things are God-given. Those good and wonderful things. But you know those good and wonderful things, those God-given things, they're pointing to something else. They're pointing to something bigger and better and beyond imagine. They're pointing to the resurrection. That's what they're pointing to. 
Because on the day of the resurrection, when we are raised, we will see God in all His glory. And all these wonderful things that I've just described will be small in comparison to God in all His glory. That's the point of these small things. To point you to the big and better things. Because His glory is better than ours. And His glory is better than the world's. So let's sow those tears to him. Let's pray to him. So let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are thankful beyond all measure for those who have walked with you for so long. Like we, we, we don't even remember how long it was since we received that you gave us the gift of the joy of your salvation. Wake us from our slumber, please. Help us to just get out of the, the mundane. Help us to experience once again the joy of your, our salvation and what you achieved for us on the cross. Let it stir up in us, Lord God, that joy, the joy to the point where we would share that joy with others and not keep it to ourselves. Would you make that move across our church, across all the churches, across our country, across the world? And Jesus, for those who do not know you, Would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, draw them to your side? Would you give them just a taste of your joy, the joy of your salvation? Because they've been chasing after things that do not matter, and they keep chasing and chasing, and it's never-ending. Let them know that you can satisfy them completely, that your joy is beyond anything. Do that for them today, Lord God. Enjoy, and Jesus, in this moment, I think of so many children, uncles, aunties, cousins, mums, dad, who maybe many years ago went to church and no longer do. They've walked away. They've deconstructed. Maybe there was a moment they tasted that joy. Wherever they are, whatever they are doing, Remind them of that joy. Bring the prodigals back home. Please, Jesus. Not just for the sake of us, but the sake, for the sake of your glory. So Jesus, we give all these things to you. Give us the joy to carry on. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So during when the song and all that, you're gonna, um, there'll be uh, elders, pastors, and life group leaders here in the front to pray. If you want to receive that joy or you feel challenged by that joy, like come up. If there's something you need to confess, please come up to pray. There'll be people up in the balconies as well. So people in the balconies, please. There'll be people up there in the sections of the prayer sections to pray with you and for you. Uh, but for now, there'll be some reflection questions up on the screen.